When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Manchester's indie rock and roll station. Excess Manchester. The Excess Manchester Long Player. An iconic album in full with Jim Salverson. Excess Manchester. Welcome to the Excess Long Player podcast, where I talk about some classic albums with the people who helped make those albums. Today on the agenda, it is Baby Shambles' debut album, Down in Albion, and I'm talking about it with drummer Adam Fichek. This is a hugely creative, hugely chaotic, 100% classic album, which... Adam tells some brilliant stories about but if it's been a while since you've listened to this album particularly listen to it in full it's a long one 16 tracks and I won't be offended if you hit pause now go and listen to the album because the Spotify link to the album is in the podcast description go and find it there and then come back because it will help add context to the conversation you're about to hear as Adam picks some of the details out from the making of this LP I hope you enjoy today's show if you do click subscribe because there's plenty more shows to come and plenty of shows have been in the past and if you really like the show please do leave a review let me know what you think of this podcast and let others know what thinks it really does help the podcast grow and it helps me to make more of these episodes grab a brew settle down this is adam fichek talking about baby shambles down in albion how you doing adam you okay yeah i'm good thank you Looking forward to talking about Down and Albion tonight. And I want to start off by talking about the very beginnings of the band, because I guess it was kind of an unusual start for Baby Shambles. Formed after Pete Doherty was banned or parted company with the Libertines whilst he overcame substance abuse issues. And then you came into the band after Gemma Clark left, I think, that was a move that was partly due to an incident where Pete couldn't perform and the crowd stormed the stage during a Baby Shambles gig. I mean, it feels like a fairly tumultuous, dramatic beginnings for a band. Did you have any reservations about kind of stepping into that, for want of a better word, chaos? Um, not really. I was kind of drawn to it, to be honest. I mean, mm. there's always a part of my personality that's just been drawn to that. Yeah, you know, that, that chaotic, that mayhem, that mess. So no, it was excitement. And this is what I was looking for. I was in a few different bands at the time, supporting Babel Shemper. So I knew what it was like. I knew what the environment was like. And I found it quite exciting to step into. So in that sense, there wasn't really any, any apprehension. The apprehension was, was this going to last, to be honest? Well, that's what I was going to say, because did it feel like a bit of a stopgap? Because obviously it was like a hiatus for Pete Doherty being taken out of Libertines. And there was always, the, the door was half open for him going back. So were there questions about whether what you were doing had any future? 
Yeah, lots of questions. And I think that was on a daily basis. I think no one knew when it was going to end, but that's what made it so exciting as well in hindsight, because it could have collapsed at any minute. And I think you can hear that within mm. the recording of Down in Albion. I think the way it was recorded, it was done through the chaos and the mess of that time, which makes it again one of those albums where you listen to it and you can hear that emotional energy is just so blatant, it's so in your face that it's, it's difficult to to not be moved in many different directions in the album. And I think that album really polarises people's opinions as well. What do you remember of those early days recording the album when you were all getting together in the studio for the first time, kind of feeling out how these songs were going to sound? What was the overriding atmosphere like? <laughs> uh, not much. Well, I kind of remember, <laughs> sometimes I have to go back to a book that was written. There was a book written um, about the band in the early days. And I go back there and it jolts my memory, really, because I think it was so chaotic. And I think there was so much, you know, substances and mess going around for everyone. And there was bereavements in the band. So it was a real, it was just a real kind of hub of chaos. But I remember it being, yeah, chaotic, getting chucked out of different studios. There was always police around. There was two big burly ex-military minders around. There was drugs around. There was drug dealers around. There was supermodels around. And that's before we even got into the music. So the music was just trying to articulate what it was like because it wasn't coherent. It wasn't like, okay, let's all get in the studio this time. Let's run through stuff. We'd all kind of limp in and then if by chance we were together, we would then, and then Mick Jones would come in and we'd knock stuff together. A lot of those songs were just half-baked ideas, really. A lot of them were also played played out from the previous touring. So it was just a bit of a shambles, to be honest. But it's the name. <laughs> hence the name is very apt, I think, the way that that name does really you know it articulates that perfectly what we were going through so it was it was it was it was shambolic very creative because i think within that glorious mess there's a load of creativity um for me anyway i come from like an improvisational background so i like being put on the spot i like being able to create on the go so because of that nature it was really i found that quite quite rich for me in hindsight i think they, they could have done with a bit more editing in some spaces, but it's, it's captured something, you know, and I think those become timeless. I think if you polish things up too much, they don't age well. But I think that album, because it is so gritty and real and creative and spontaneous, it is a real listening experience. I want to talk about some of the individual tracks as we go through this conversation. And the first one I wanted to pick out was the first single, which is Fuck Forever. Was that released as a bit of a sign to the outside world that i mean even with the title there's a clear message here that this is a band that are kind of playing by their their own rules to a certain extent that want to break conventions was that part of the thinking behind creating that song and then releasing that song as the first release from baby shambles yeah and the thing is with baby shambles i think from my perspective there was no real big preconceived you know there wasn't one of these flash pr planning marketing meetings Mm. It was maybe maybe that was done via Rough Trader. I don't know, but I think I, I, I like to believe Rough Trader a little bit more chaotic in our sense in that. Yeah, organic. Organic, yeah, organic's a good word for it. But I'm sure you know because of the press at the time as well, all that press, all that all that rebellion that of course people buy into as well. That it really encapsulated that you know two fingers up at whoever we wanted to be up against. But there also was this sense of just living for the day. Um, I mean, especially from Pete's perspective, I can't pretend to be or pretended to be in as much turmoil as he was in at the mm. time. You know, he's, 
It was getting rinsed through the press. I think relationship struggles. His band, the previous band, had collapsed. I mean, there was a lot going on for him. So predominantly, him being the main writer of that, it was coming from his place of turbulence. But there was that. I think there was this just you know, live fast, die young mentality in it. And those lyrics encapsulate that, you know, two mm. fingers up at time, as it were. I'm just going to do what I want to do. And then you just can work out what you want to do with that after. And I think that's what I've always been, I've always respected in him in that sense. I think a lot of other people of, of his status, you know, you always see him out in the press going to the opening of everything. And it's all very glamour. It's all very glitz. And in this generation of Instagram, it's easy to do and it's a lot of pressure, but I think with him, I've always respected that. Mm. I've always respected he'll just do what he wants to do. I mean, yeah, sometimes it can be painful for people, but I have to respect that. I have to respect that someone that treads their own path in that sense. So, yeah, there was this element of rebellion in it, I think, and it corresponded with the press we were getting. It corresponded with the rebellious, youthful energy at that time, I think. Speaking of respect, you had Mick Jones from The Clash, who you mentioned earlier, he was part of the production team on this album. What's it like working with a man with that kind of history in music? Because normally, I guess, the relationship between a band and the relationship between a producer, it's a, it's a two-way conversation. It's a, it's a discussion. It's a negotiation. But when you've got someone like Mick Jones who's been there and done that, do you just find yourself, you, you kind of have to take what he says or what he thinks as gospel because of the heritage he's got? I think initially, I think when you meet anyone initially, you know, you're projecting all sorts of things on them of what they mean to, to you personally. What he meant to me was listening to that Clash first album and listening to all those songs and how I got into them from there. But then after a few days, he's just another human being that's, mm. you know, we all had lucky breaks. We all have a certain amount of talent and it's easy then to kind of peel that away. To be honest, I think the strength of Mick Jones is that he just slots in. He's not there as an authority. He just really kind of merged with the band and he would press record when he wanted it, when it felt okay. And Bill Price was there as well, engineering. Mm. It felt very fluid. And I think that's the only kind of producer that, that would have worked at that time. I think there's not many producers that would have put up with the chaos and the mess and all the stuff that was going on. But I think because he'd been through similar things, I, I yeah. think when you go through those experiences, you can understand it a lot more. So I think he was, he was just, he was the perfect fit for that particular time of where we were at. The two words that I keep on coming back to when you're talking, Adam, I think are chaos and creativity. They seem to, seem to be like the cornerstones of this album. And on the creativity front, Pentaville is a really interesting track. It doesn't really fit musically with the rest of the album. It's kind of a reggae tune. Was that a way to project that creative freedom or was it a flag that you're waving that kind of going, look, we're not the Libertines, we're something else? You know, I could lean into all that and, and pretend, but for me, it's quite contentious. I'm not so sure whether that track should have particularly been on the album. Okay. But, you know, it's one of those tracks that there was a guy that Pete had met in prison and he came out and he wanted to do some music with us. And, um, you know, Pentonville was, was a result of that. I think most of those tracks that were, we didn't know what was going to be B-sides, what was going to be on the albums, etc. So from my perspective, it wasn't a conscious move to say, look who we are. As I said, there wasn't much of that preconceived notion of sitting down and saying, right, the Libertines were this kind of style and we're this. It wasn't that. It was just thrown together, really. And then it came out as this, again, you know, this creative, chaotic piece of art. Am I right in thinking that quite a lot of the album was recorded as live? Yeah, yeah, all of it. I mean, it depends how you view live, really. I mean, there were, there were, there's minimal edits in that. Mm. So what you hear in the audio is unprocessed audio. From my own perspective, I can hear loads of flaws. The drumming speeds up, it slows down, you know, depending, depending what, what I was doing at the time. 
and the same with everyone else. So there were, you know, there were overdubs, but they were live and there's very limited processing compared to how a modern album would have been done at that time. It was very gritty. And when it came out, I was like, wow, this is really raw. And it concerned me. And I remember Mick Jones saying, yeah, but you'll listen back in 20 years and you would have, you'll capture what it's now. And I think he was right. I think at the time I was looking for more gloss and mm. we were told that we'd missed playlists on Radio 1 at the time, which was, you know, it's not what it's, what it's like now. Um, but back then it was a, a key part of guitar music. And we were told we won't get the airplay because of production quality and stuff like this. So for me, I was, I was slightly gutted at the fact that we could have made it better. We could have really honed it. We could have processed it. But in hindsight, yeah, I look back. And, and I can hear, you know, when I listen to those tracks, I can hear my emotional state. I was in the emotional state of the other players that we were in as well. And it really is a snapshot. So in that sense, to me, it's a much more authentic real record. And I think it will last, you know, the longevity of time. I guess what you can also hear as it is a, a live-ish album is you can hear the quality of the musicianship, which is it's something that Baby Shambles didn't always get the credit they deserved for, maybe as a band. I think the live shows let's say there were mixed reviews sometimes sometimes they didn't happen sometimes they were chaotic sometimes they didn't last the whole length that they should have done did that kind of lack of praise i guess really that kind of playing down of you guys as musicians did that hurt at the time yeah i think during the early days yeah we were written off as this kind of neo-punk band that just kind of fumbled about on our instruments and i think we were quite accomplished you know i know i, know I used to play a lot with patrick before and we do a lot of improvisational stuff so in that sense, we can all hold our own in the musical arena, I think. And we were written off like that. But in that sense, if people were going to want to put you in some kind of frame or box, they're going to do it anyway. And I think, again, if you listen to the If Down and Album, you can hear that. And because there's no real preconceived structure of a lot of those songs, that is just us free, freestyling, as it were, really. I'm going to ask you to pick a highlight off the album in a moment and it can be a track that was a favorite moment or a favorite track or just a part of the album that sparks a memory or something you love musically whatever so i'm just going to let you think about that for a second while i ask you one more question about kilimanjaro which is one of the key tracks on the album one of the big singles as well now the original single version on that i believe had Gemma playing drums but the version on the album is a re-record with you how do you approach something like that if you're recreating a single version that's featured another artist previously, do you feel like you need to offer something different in the version that you were part of? Um, yeah, I think I had to stick to kind of the structure that they knew just to keep it simple and to try and save time. So nothing was going to go in there. Also, Paul Epworth produced that single. So it's quite quantized. It's quite pulled together and quite polished. And that approach would never have worked for the album because everything else was a bit more messy. Yeah. So in that sense, I tried to just stick to what was already being played, try and keep it quite consistent because beat-wise, it's quite consistent. And then just add some different things within there. But I didn't really put away much from it because everyone had been playing that structure anyway and it's something they were used to. So it was quite an easy song to record. And then just adding more musical bits like in the breakdown in the middle, adding harmonies and um, percussion and stuff. Pick me a highlight from the album, Adam. Like I say, it can be any of those things I mentioned. It doesn't have to necessarily be a favourite track, but at the same time, it could be a favourite track. When you listen back to this, if you listen back to it, what really stands out for you? One song that always makes me kind of smile was, I think it was about four or five in the morning, and it was just Pete and myself were up in the studio, and we finished the take of Merry Go Round. And at the end of it, you can kind of hear him falling off the stool. And if there's a part of it, you can kind of hear me falling over, I think, in there somewhere. For me, it was quite a sad time. And my mother was, was dying at the time. I mean, Patrick was also being bereaved at the same time. It was a real, I was in this juxtaposition of like, 
glory and, and achieving everything I wanted to achieve, plus the, the full weight of, of losing a parent. So for mm. me, it was an emotionally turbulent time. And I think that song kind of encapsulates it with, with that real soft melody with a melancholy within it and this sense of chaos going on. Adam, it's been fascinating talking to you about this album. I think what I'm getting a understanding of, which I never had before, is the different emotions and the different feelings and the joy and the pain and the chaos and the talent that was all kind of combining into this at the same time. How do you feel about Down in Albion now you look back on it? What are we? It must be about 15 years since its release, around that. It sounds like you enjoyed your experience of making it, certainly in part, but do you feel like as an album it gets the credit it deserves? No, it doesn't. I think it doesn't get any, any of the credit it deserves. Whenever I hear these kind of albums of the noughties, we're never in it. We're always like the, the underdogs. But there's something quite nice about being an underdog. As I say, you know, I think we were never a band where you'd see us on Instagram now going to the various openings of Celebrity Horn. So I think there's something quite, something quite authentic about the album, which translates across us as people as well. Yeah, how do I view it? I view it as a real, very real, very authentic piece of... <laughs> gloriously shambolic music that was indicative of the time well hopefully on the excess long play we've given it a little bit of the credit it deserves because in our eyes it definitely is a classic album adam pleasure to speak to you and thanks for your time on the excess yeah. long player no problem all right take care of yourself the excess manchester long player an iconic album in full with jim salverson excess manchester Cheers for your ears. Thank you very much for listening to this week's Excess Long Player. There'll be another podcast very soon, another classic album. Maybe it'll be your favourite album that is discussed on the show, or maybe your favourite album has already been covered off already. If you enjoyed this and it's your first time on the podcast, check back on some of the interviews I've done so far, some of the albums that have been covered, because there's some absolute belters, some true classic albums in the mix already, and plenty more to come. Because of that, I urge you, to click subscribe now so you don't miss any of those episodes. And hopefully, I'll see you next time. The Excess Manchester Long Player, an iconic album in full with Jim Salverson. Excess Manchester.